and welcome to Talking and Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hi, Zahava. Hey. Um, I'm so happy to be speaking to you ladies after such a long, hard month. We have a lot to talk about. This month on the podcast, we're going to be talking about Hyas with Rebecca Kersner, who's the Hyas Campaigns Director of Community Engagement. Um, We'd actually planned to talk with Rebecca before the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, but we're happy to have it now so that we can explore the work that Hyas is doing together and how Hyas has been processing what the last couple weeks have been like. And for our second segment, we're talking about the play Observance by Alyssa Nicole Trust that played at the New York Fringe Fest last month. So I'll kick us off. Um, So as Tamar was saying, today we are joined by Rebecca Kersner, who is the Community Engagement Campaigns Director for HIAS. Um, So we reached out to Rebecca several weeks ago to see if she'd be able to discuss with us HIAS's history of first helping Jewish refugees and its current work serving refugees more broadly and how people can get involved. And in the meantime, as as I'm sure all our listeners know, there was a horrible and deadly attack on the Jewish community in the Tree of Life congregation in Pittsburgh. And part of the gunman's stated motivation was to fight against Hyas's work supporting and resettling refugees. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us at what I'm sure is a really difficult and busy time for you and for Hyas. Absolutely, thanks for having me on. Um, so as we were preparing for the segment, I had originally included Hyas's uh, one-time full name and Tamar corrected me that this is uh, no longer um, Hyas no longer goes by the full name Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Um, but that's the name I think that a lot of people are still familiar with. Uh, I think it's even still on the UNHCR website. Um, and one thing that really strikes me about um, the evolution of the organization is that it feels like the word Hebrew used to describe the immigrant and now it describes the aid. Um, or to uh, quote uh, a refrain that you see in a lot of interviews that highest staff gives, um, we, we used to help refugees because they were Jewish, and now we help refugees because we are Jewish. Um, so I'd love to hear you speak a little bit to how that evolution happened and where Hyas was coming from and where it is today. Sure. Well, today Hyas is an international refugee agency with operations in 10 countries, and we are the world's oldest refugee agency, founded 137 years ago to aid Jewish refugees. And so, uh, as you alluded to, you know, throughout the decades, we helped 4.5 million Jews to come to this country and to start their lives here in a place with safety and dignity and opportunity. And over time, um, our organization evolved, and we now do the same for refugees from around the world, irrespective of their race, ethnicity, nationality, or religion. Um, and so that. Um, that evolution happened over time. Um, you know, when Hyas started, we were an aid society founded by Jews for the arriving Jewish immigrants. And I, I love learning about that period of time, um, especially from people's family stories that they, I get so many people coming up to me telling me Hyas helped my grandmother, my great grandmother, my aunt. Um, and I love hearing about um, how we provided Yiddish translation on Ellis Island or helped people's relatives to buy their first suit for a job interview or gave people a meal or a place to stay. 
Um, I actually this week heard a family story about a sukkah that Chaya set up on Ellis Island, and I had no idea um, about that. And there have been a few moments that Hyas's work dramatically changed. Um, the first was probably in 1922 when the Quota Act restricted Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe, um, and Hyas needed to set up international offices because there was no other way to, um, you know, there wasn't a way to bring people here. And so, you know, in order to help Jewish immigrants, we had to help help them to to find safety abroad. Um, and then during the Holocaust, um, you know, I've heard so many stories about Hyas's work on kinder transport or in smuggling Jewish refugees from France to Switzerland. Um, and then, you know, Hyas's work really changed with the UN Refugee Convention in 1951 and, and, and with the establishment of the State of Israel. But, you know, more recently, basically, um, you know, after the Soviet Jewry movement ended and after, you know, there many successive waves of Jewish immigration kind of subsided, um, we decided that based on our Jewish values, we want to be doing this work to help refugees from around the world. And so we've really been living into that work, um, you know, especially starting uh, in the 1970s with resettling refugees from the Vietnam War and, and then in the 2000s when we started opening our international offices. For example, uh, Hyas Kenya was actually the very first one in 2002. Hmm. I didn't even know that Hyas operated for that, that Hyas had those bases abroad. This is totally new information to me, so I'm really glad to hear about it. I think that's the part that, um, you know, it's one of the biggest parts of our organization, and it's one of the things that people know the least about, uh, is actually our, our work in supporting refugees in, in countries around the world. And so it's such an ongoing and evolving um, body of work. But um, for example, just a few years ago, we set up an office on Lesbos, on the island of Lesbos, um, helping refugees who were fleeing across the Mediterranean to Greece. Um, and then a, you know, a year after that, we set up Pius Costa Rica to help uh, Central American refugees that were fleeing uh, to Costa Rica and to help them to, you know, integrate and, and to culturate to Costa Rica. So we really, um, you know, we, we're continually looking for ways that we can serve the most vulnerable refugees in, in places around the world. Wow. Do you, I mean, I know it sounds like the, the mission is relatively distinct from what it once was, but I know you've worked at Jewish organizations before. Does it still feel to you like a Jewish organization, or do you feel like that is kind of uh, the history, but the the present and the future is not particularly doesn't doesn't feel very Jewish? It feels so much like a Jewish organization. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, my work is in engaging the Jewish community and getting involved with this type of work. So maybe my work in particular. Um, and the work of the rest of the Jewish community engagement team. Um, but we really mean it when we say that we're doing this work out of Jewish values, and we really do believe that in any of these locations and whatever we're doing, um, we are kind of representing the Jewish community in those spaces. Um, you know, a lot of our staff is not Jewish because 
you know, when you're when you're serving refugees from around the world, of course, you need people who have the language skills and the cultural background to do that. Um, but we, you know, we uh, are constantly creating Jewish materials, you know, for people to include in their uh, holiday observances to talk about refugees. We're constantly creating programs like National Refugee Shabbat or the Highest Welcome Campaign, which is a synagogue. Uh, action network. Um, so we're we're definitely engaging the Jewish community in this work. Um, again, you know, based on our values as opposed to um, just because we are serving Jewish refugees. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really powerful, and people have really um, responded to that and have been getting involved with us increasingly over the course of the past few years. Yeah, I mean, I I am the grandchild of somebody who got out of. Austria on the kinder transport and I do totally credit Hyas with um, you know a, the survival of my family and I do think that that like that's certainly very powerful to me and I can't imagine it not being powerful to other people who have similar stories <clears throat> you know whether or not it's serving other Jews like knowing that you directly live where you do because of Hyas is very emotional and powerful. Um, and it's cool to be able to feel like you can be part of the chain of helping others. Uh, it's really amazing to hear that story and to, and to hear just so many stories like that. I think that there is something really powerful for people, not just in taking action on an issue that they agree with, but in but in doing it through the exact same organization that helped them. Um, I recently learned on another podcast, actually, that Emma Lazarus was a volunteer with Hias. Um, and that was just so cool to find out and, you know, to, to feel like, you know, okay, so, you know, we have hundreds of volunteers around the country. They have something in common with, with Emma Lazarus, I guess. That's pretty cool. So it has been a really horrible uh, week and a half since the shooting in Pittsburgh for everyone, I think. But I can imagine that at highest it's been particularly, uh, I mean, I just don't even know what the word would be other than traumatizing. Um, And I'm curious, like, how as an organization you're processing what happens and what kind of how you're how you're moving forward with this um in the near past that might not be a question that can be answered (laughs) yeah i mean i i think you're right It, it has been a really long week um i think we're all really exhausted um and you know I don't have the words for it. I mean, we're distraught, we're grieving, we're, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're nothing short of distraught <laughs> to learn of the shooting in Pittsburgh. And it, and it has been um, just over a week, but the feeling hasn't faded at all, at least for me yet. Um, and the shooter was filled with hatred, you know, not only for Jews, but also for refugees and immigrants. And... Um, and his stated reason for for doing this in the first place is because they are standing up with Hyas and standing up for refugees. Um, 
I am proud of the work that we do in the world, and I know that, you know, every day in the past week, at least once a day, I've had a conversation with a colleague in which we've affirmed for each other that we're not going to let this stop us from doing what's right, uh, we're not going to let fear stop us, that we're going to, um, you know, continue to stand for a world that is more compassionate and more kind and safer and more just. And, you know, and we're going to continue helping people in their time of need. Um, and so, and I think if anything, we're all going to do it with more ferocity and more resolve and more love than we ever have before. Um, but, you know, it's also a period of, of deep grief. And I, and I don't think that our organization is ever going to be quite the same after this. Since you work on community engagement, do you want to talk a little bit on some ways that communities are um, are working with HIAS um, and some ways that communities might be able to uh, sign on, particularly in this moment? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I guess I should start by saying that Jewish communities truly have been involved with working with refugees, and that work has grown dramatically in the past few years. Um, just a few years ago, when I started at Pius, it was a fairly rare occurrence to find a synagogue that was, for example, supporting the resettlement of a refugee family in their community. Um, but it's no longer a rare occurrence, and that's uh, just so gratifying to see. We work with hundreds of synagogues now who are aiding refugees who are coming to their communities, um, who are raising money for refugees, who are advocating to their elected officials. Um, who are protesting in the streets against policies that are harmful to refugees and asylum seekers. Um, you know, there's just so much of that activity happening, and it's really, it's it's great to see. And of course, we have to do more. But I, I also just want to recognize that our community has. Um, this is an issue, one of those odd issues that actually is somewhat unifying in the Jewish world, and. Um, and it's nice to see people from kind of across all of our various Jewish spectrums being able to engage in some way. Um, so I guess if you're if you are interested in helping, we want you to. Um, we have volunteer opportunities. We have um, you know definitely a need for advocacy um, and and really love for people to get involved. Um, we have a program called the Highest Welcome Campaign, which consists of 427, as of today, from, we have a 427th congregation from join. Um, it's a synagogue network um, of synagogues who are taking action with refugees in a variety of ways, and uh, we highly encourage uh, communities to sign on and be part of that. Um, and tomorrow we're going to elect a new Congress. And it's going to be really important to reach out to our newly elected officials as early as possible to make sure that they understand refugee, asylum, and immigration issues and understand that they're a priority for our community. And it's not necessarily the issue that they campaigned on, but we, we really do need to make sure that they are aware and knowledgeable and, and ready to take action. Um, I also encourage people to, to find out the local immigration and asylum and, and refugee organizations in your community because a lot of the needs uh, that are out there are very specific to the community and, and uh, getting involved locally is really important. Um, 
Uh, but if you are interested in being involved, um, you can do that on our website, highest.org uh, slash take dash action. Um, or you can join the Facebook group, which is called Jews for Refugees. And we try to post as many opportunities as we possibly can in there um, for people to, to get involved with our work. You know, I'm so glad to hear how many synagogues are involved um, in preparation for this conversation, one of the things um, that I read was an old interview, uh, an interview from 2015 that Dara Lind at Fox had done with Mark Hetfield, the CEO um, of Hyas. And one thing that he said was that after the, um, the big wave of Soviet Jewry was resettled um, in the United States, that there was a fall off in the number of involved Jewish congregations. Um, and it sounds like from what you're saying that that in the last few years there's been a significant resurgence um, which is really great to hear and i wanted to ask and this may be a kind of an indelicate and, and maybe depressing question um, but i did wonder whether the face of refugees in america right now being syrian to an extent in a lot of people's minds and a lot of um, a lot of the Jewish population having very complicated feelings about um, the, you know, I, I have heard Jews say, well, those people don't like us. Why should we take care of them? Right. And that there's a perception. Um, there's a perception that if there's uh, th that the enmity in the Middle East between Israel and a lot of its neighbors should affect our refugee policy. Um, so I'm wondering, I'm sure that's something that you hear from communities. I'm sure I'm not saying anything that you don't hear all the time. So I'm curious how you usually respond to those comments and, and how you approach this with Jewish communities that have um, trepidation about it. Yeah, it's a great question. And I first want to say that I don't hear those questions all the time. Um, it's really? not like I've never heard them, but I have found that there's a huge amount of receptiveness to the idea that the Jewish community can view this as a humanitarian issue and can view this as, you know, a simple case of helping people in their time of need and that there's a clear linkage to Jewish values. And, and I haven't, I actually don't hear those things all the time anymore. Um, and that is just, you know, to the credit of so many people who have reached out to say that they support our work and so many people who are involved with our work. Um, and to the credit of your work. <laughs> um, um, and I mean, I think also to the credit of the fact that like refugees that come to this country are screened to, you know, within an inch of their life. And so. All of those things, right? I mean, for sure, refugees, you know, nobody who's ever come through the U.S. refugees admissions program has ever committed a terrorist attack against the United States. So, you know, all of these kind of fear mongering. Um, talking points that you hear are not actually grounded in any kind of fact. Um, it, when it comes to the U.S. refugee program, you know, you're right, Tamar, they're, they're screened within an inch of their own life. Um, but, you know, what I, would, what I would say is that in addition to this being a humanitarian issue, I really do believe that the work that we do in resettling Muslim refugees, um, which is slightly over slightly over half of the refugees that we resettle are Muslim refugees. And, and I think the work that we do um, is 
an answer to anti-Semitism and hate in itself. I think that you don't combat, you know, you don't combat stereotypes and biases by just, you know, spewing talking points out into the world. You combat it by building bridges between communities. And we are out there helping people, individual people, and what we hear back from them is, wow, I was raised thinking that all Jews were terrible or all Jews were, um, you know, the, I was raised thinking that all Jews are, are you know, are, are terrible. But instead, um, what I'm finding is that the Jewish community was the community that helped me. And the Jewish community is the community um, that offered me uh, housing and um, met me at the airport and helped me find a job and it changes people's minds um, and I think that in a way our work in helping refugees and helping people at their, at their worst time um, and being our best selves is how we combat anti-Semitism. That's a really good answer, I gotta say. I, I, hope, you, I hope you get to make that argument to as many people as need to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I think we were all feeling like, oh, this must be such a crazy time for you, for everybody in your organization. And I'm just sort of curious, like from this is what we say a lot in social worky communities, but how are people at highest taking care of themselves, um, taking care of one another this past week? Well, okay, let's say, let's start with not enough. Um, I think that we're, we've all worked really hard this week and we're all trying to kind of step up in response to being a target of this shooting and also in response to the fact that the work goes on. And, you know, this is also the week that President Trump is making threats against uh, the U.S. offering asylum at the border and you know, threatening to send troops to the border and threatening to end um, child welfare standards for immigration detentions for children, um, you know, and so we're, we're trying to kind of balance all of those things and to move forward and, and to do the work, and I'm sure we're not taking care of ourselves enough, um, but right before Shabbat, um, our executive director uh, because, of course, we all worked last Shabbat. I apologize to anyone who finds that offensive, but as soon as we saw the, you know, the headlines that Hyas had to do with the shooting, we, you know, we all kind of, many of us, uh, you know, have jumped back onto email and, and started to respond and started to, you know, answer calls from media and, and things like that. And, but right before this past Shabbat, our, our executive director sent out an email to the entire staff um, explaining Shabbat, especially for the people in our staff who are not Jewish, um, and saying, look, this is a day of rest, and, um, and citing actual maybe four or five different biblical verses, um, saying, you know, this is something that I really want our whole staff to uh, engage in right now, and to, you know, to take this day as a day of rest. And so in that way, and maybe this goes back to your question about whether or not we're a Jewish organization. Our whole staff observed Shabbat this week, Jewish and not Jewish alike, and, and that's, that was a very key way that we're taking care of ourselves. That's great. Yeah, it's beautiful. 
Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, I think that it's something that, you know, already inspired us before the events in Pittsburgh, but certainly um, everything feels different now. And we're so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. And um, I hope we'll all be a part of it in different ways in our communities. Thank you so much for having me on. Everything does feel different for us, but I also have to say that we've received such an outpouring of love from the Jewish community in this past week. Just so many letters saying that people care about the work that we do. They feel, you know, they feel proud to be part of it. They, and they, you know, they want to support us in doing it. So it was great to be able to see that. And we're feeling a lot of things right now, but alone is not one of them. Um, so I just really thank you guys for having us on the podcast. I love this podcast and I'm super excited that I'm on it now. Um, and, um, yeah, it's really great to be able to speak to all of you. Thank you so much, really. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you so much, really. All right. Well, I did want to talk for just a couple of minutes, um, after Rebecca has gone about synagogue security, because, I know that there are a lot of conversations happening in different communities about that recently in the wake of the shooting in Pittsburgh. And um, I'm curious what you have been seeing and hearing in your communities and how you, what would your, like, has your feelings about what security should look like at your shul changed? And what would the ideal scenario be? Well, did you two receive any kind of security update from your respective congregations? Because the, you know, the morning after the shooting, um, I, everyone on my shul email list got an email from the shul president and rabbi about revisiting security procedures and professionalizing the security that the shul already has. There is always a guard posted outside. I honestly don't know whether that guard is armed usually, um, but there was an immediate reaction that clearly the shul would revisit its policy. Is that something you guys saw from, from your congregations? I mostly belong to Minyanim, so we don't have this issue. And if anything, the conversation in the Minyanim that I'm a part of has been about um, community engaging community partners and allies in security in the past week. Um, but I know that... I know that similar things have happened, like in my parents' community and siblings, um, where there's more of a building and a structure, and they've already maybe have some sort of security policy. What about you, Tamar? There is usually a security guard um, at stationed kind of like at the door of my shul, and I actually have not heard anything from the shul about it since the shooting. I am on the board, so if anything was going to change financially, I think I would probably have been made aware of it quickly. Um, there's a board meeting later this week, so maybe something is going to change, and I haven't been told yet, but uh, it didn't seem to be the case this past Shabbat, and I hope it won't. I, I hope that will continue to stay the case going forward, because my ideal situation involves no security, um, which I understand makes some people nervous, but frankly, I don't find security guards to make me feel secure at all. 
I consider myself very lucky to go to um, a shul that is very racially diverse and um, my own family is racially diverse and I hear from a lot of my friends of color that being around um, armed guards does not make them feel safe, it makes them feel not safe. Um, And I just personally don't feel safe around guns, so all of that just makes me not not want to be in a community where there is like a big security presence. And I, my reaction to what happened in Pittsburgh has really not been fear driven. Um, It's really been about sadness and grief for me. And so I have really focused on like, okay, how can I feel supported by my community? How can I support other people in my community who are feeling the way I'm feeling? How can I support the people who are, you know, families of people who died? And I'm just not, the the takeaway for me, it just isn't about security. And I don't, I don't want that to be um, kind of where the Jewish community goes from here. But I don't, I don't think that's likely. Uh, I think I'm, I think I'm in the minority. So what would you, I mean, what would you like to have happen for, for in your shul, Zahava? I mean, I, I think that, um, I, I have, I have never felt that the security guards that were there were making a meaningful difference in my security. And that is, no knock on them personally. It just situationally didn't feel like it made a difference. Um, A couple of weeks ago, the security guard that was stationed at the door opened the door for me as I walked into shul. And I said, you know, you're thanks, but you're not the doorman. You know, that's not why you're here. But in a way there, there was a, a, a weird vibe that it was part of making the shul feel like a, you know, formal space in any number of ways. And I, it, it felt sort of, silly and performative and and that might have just been me but that was that that's before Pittsburgh um I mean I think that it it really comes down to what you think the security is accomplishing um and what specifically it's trying to prevent um because if a Robert Bowers is going to storm a shul with a in you know, an AR-15 and four handguns, that person is not trying to slip in unnoticed. Um, and certainly he is uh, prepared to not be outgunned no matter who is there holding whatever handgun. Um, and in fact, in this case, he, you know, managed to injure multiple armed police officers. So if, if it's this situation, then I don't think having an armed guard there makes a difference at all. Um, it does feel like, it, it feels more like what security is there to do is to profile the people coming in um, and to get a sense of, should this person be here or not be here? And if it feels, feels like they shouldn't be here, then maybe they're here to do something like, plant an explosive or something of that nature. But what that really comes down to is having a fixed notion in your mind of who should and shouldn't be there. And that really cuts against the mission that 
shul communities have, I think, of being welcoming and inclusive to people who show up wanting to pray and wanting to be part of the community. And it's very hard to imagine a version of this where those things can coexist. Um, and as you said, Tamar, a lot of that winds up being racial. There's a notion that, you know, Jews look a certain way, that Jews are like either white Ashkenazim or like slightly toasty Sephardim, and that's all. Um, and more, more also, not just um, that it's, in addition to that, it's not just a, an ethnicity issue, but it's also, do you dress right? Do you look like you know the rules for being here? Um, do you look like you know the communication codes for what you're telegraphing with your clothes and your hair covering and your, you know, having or not having an electronic device or whatever in a way that's explicitly hostile to, to newcomers? Um, it's just very hard for me to envision a version of this that achieves a useful goal without sacrificing a fundamental purpose. That's, the, I mean, that... that to me yeah. is like the dichotomy of coming off of something like a refugee Shabbat or talking about Hayas and welcoming the stranger and the the number of times that we're reminded to welcome the stranger and then to also have to talk about security and what that means in terms of profiling. How do we welcome the stranger when we have a security guard who's trying to identify who's a stranger here? Yeah. I don't want to diminish people's legitimate fear. Like, I think that there is a real thing going on and that there is a, um, a resurgent feeling that anti-Semitism is a real thing that maybe we felt better than we should have about for a while. Um, or at least that's true of me. Um, and I, I absolutely understand people wanting to do something self-protective it's just very hard for me to envision what it is. I wonder if there's also a role for Jewish communal professionals and synagogue professionals in management to be cooperating with the intelligence community in a certain way. I mean, I remember times in Little Rock when the president and rabbi of our temple would meet with FBI offices to talk about white nationalist threats in the area to make sure that they were informed about what's going on in our community or in our neighborhood at least. Um, and I think that that there that we can talk about openness and hospitality and also understanding what are real threats and making sure that we know what those are and what they might look like. In a sort of yeah. modestly related vein, I will say the one thing that I have appreciated in the past in the realm of, of security is that in shuls that I've attended a lot of times for high holiday services or like big shul moments during the year, um, that there has been support from local police forces where you might have a police officer parked across the street um, or something in the vicinity that makes it clear that the the neighborhood's security apparatus is invested in this Jewish community as part of the neighborhood and not as some like other thing that needs to protect itself. Um, and that person isn't there because they know who's supposed to be in shul. Um, 
they're there as a show of the security of this entity is important to the police and that people passing by and potentially coming in should know that. Um, and I certainly understand that there are many Jews with reason to feel uh, conflicted uh, about or skeptical of the police. Um, but there is a different symbolism, I think, to that kind of presence than the shul hiring itself an armed guard. I think you're right. I mean, there was, um, now that you say it, there was a police car parked across the street from our synagogue um, this week when we went in for Shabbat. Um, and I did notice it. And I mean, I am a white woman. And so I noticed the police in a different way than I think a lot of people of color, especially men of color do. Um, so I don't know what it felt like for them in that space. It's not something that I would want every week. I, I kind of clocked it and understood it this week, but I don't, I hope it's not there this coming Shabbat. Um, because, you know, it's cause, it's cause for concern for everyone. Like I don't, guns make people less safe. (laughs) And I think I recently took a mental health first aid training that um, is mandatory for all police officers. And I would say that I came away from this two day training with like three minutes worth of solid content. (laughs) And that's not to discount those three minutes of solid content. Like I think they're good. I'm glad I got them. But I don't like think like, oh, well, police officers got this. And so like if someone who is unwell who's like mentally ill comes in and does something dangerous, they're going to be able to talk them down um, in a way that's safe for everyone. Like, I just don't believe that. That's not really how police officers are trained to behave for the most part. So it's, you know, I, I just, I don't feel safer. And I have a lot of respect for a lot of the work that gets done by the police. But I also just think like, at the end of the day, I do want my synagogue to be a safe place, and um, I don't think that the police usually help that. Um, but, I mean, I don't know what to say. I guess, <laughs> I guess there's different ways to look at it, and I, um, I'm glad that we are kind of like all not on the side of like, surround our synagogues with like turrets and like armed guards at every corner. Um, and I'm curious to see how the Jewish community is going to kind of wrestle with this. Cause I, I, I was comforted by the fact that even though that I expected a lot of people to go like really intensely towards, um, we have to beef up security And I immediately saw a lot of people pushing back and being like, that's not actually how we're going to get safer. And I really appreciated that lots of people were saying that, that voices of color were being centered in that conversation um, and that people were just generally thinking about that we want to be safe against attackers, but we also need to be a safe place for the people who are part of our community every day. Um, And I think we really need to balance those things. So... I'm glad that lots of people are talking about it and I hope the conversations continue. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, I think um, it is time for us to move on to our significantly lighter second segment. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Um, uh, Mimi, would you like to tell us about it? Yeah. So last month, um, we all had the chance to see the play Observance, written by Alyssa Nicole Trust, directed by Susanna Walk. It was in the New York Fringe Fest. Um, Observance tells the story of Gabby Goldblum, who goes off to study abroad for a semester at Hebrew U in Jerusalem. Um, She's paired with an Orthodox roommate, Shoshana, from the Five Towns, um, who is initially aghast and offended by Gabby's crop-top-wearing, pot-smoking, premarital sex-having ways. Um, But eventually, Gabby joins Shoshana for Shabbat dinner at a rabbi's house and starts to become more observant herself. Um, I think the play explores how Gabby's observance impacts her relationship with Shoshana, with her secular parents and her boyfriend, and with her own sense of who she is. Um, So I was really curious one of the things I read after seeing the play is that the playwright was also the woman playing the main character did you guys know that going into this I did not me neither okay it sort of changed how I felt um because during the play I was thinking this feels a little kiruvi a little like orthodox outreach um but then learning that the woman who wrote the play is actually not observant herself. This was her, she, she's an actress in New York. This was her exploration of um, having seen friends who spent a semester in Israel and became more observant. She was thinking, I wonder how that would have played out in my life. Um, and yeah, that really changed my image of the play, but I'm curious to hear what you guys thought. It's so interesting that it seemed Kiravi to you because <laughs> I really felt like all of the non-Orthodox characters were people and all of the Orthodox characters were not people um, or that they were much more thinly drawn. Um, and so it was, I had no idea what the playwright's backstory was, but when I read that she herself is uh, not Orthodox, I was totally unsurprised, um, <laughs> partially because some of the cultural signifiers were wrong, like Shoshana just doesn't seem like a person from the five towns. Um, right. <laughs> she seems like she seems like she's from Passaic, but like a Jap from Passaic, it was weird. Uh-huh. And then... Um, Would somebody from five towns go to Hebrew U for a semester? No. That's another question I had. I, I mean, clearly that person would have gone to seminary after high school, and so this wouldn't have been her Israel, you know, like school time experience. Uh, plus, I happened to see the play with a friend of mine who who went to Stern College, the Yeshiva University College for Women, which is ostensibly where Shoshana went to school the rest of the time. And she said to me, "I never met anybody like that at Stern." <laughs> um, the fact is, I, I don't want to seem down on the play because I think that a lot of it was great and a lot of the performances were really great. I I want to shout out Alyssa Nicole Trust because I thought her performance as the main character, Gabby, was quite good. I thought the actors that played Gabby's parents, uh, whose names are Sue Birch and Scott Clavin, uh, I may be mispronouncing that, were also very good. Um, and that specifically the... Um, 
the young person changes their religious life and complicates their relationship with their family in a really fundamental way, that that rang very true and that the scenes between those characters rang very true. Um, and I thought that also the interactions with her, um, with her non-religious boyfriend, Noah, um, who's played by Cristal, um, were also quite good in the, the figuring out how to navigate a relationship that you don't want to sacrifice, even as the person you were in that relationship is changing. All of that was really strong. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, but I do think the um, new re newly religious person having conflicts with the family and friends from before aspect of the play was a lot more convincing than the story of her becoming religious and why right. the why the model of religiosity that she's getting from this roommate or from this rabbinical couple that she encounters is in any way strong or compelling. You don't have a great sense of her motivation um, or the specifics of the meaning she gets. And the version of orthodoxy that she gets from them feels pretty platitudinous, um, which was disappointing to me, I think, because this needs to be something that she's really invested in in order to have such significant conflicts with her family. Right. There was a moment when she was talking with her parents about why she was becoming more observant, and she talks about the peace that she feels when she turns her phone off for Shabbat. And I was, I turned to my husband, who I went to the play with, and was like, she could do that without being orthodox. <laughs> like, this is a really big change that she's just undergone in order to turn her phone off for 25 hours. That's me. Yeah, I. Tomorrow, what'd you think? I felt similarly to both of you. There was a lot about it that I liked, and I have, I happen to have seen this situation play out in friendships like a lot of times of people who like either get really from or grow up from and get less from, and then their families have to navigate it. Um, and I actually have. Um, a very close friend from when I was doing my junior year abroad in Israel, um, who was somebody that I spent like almost every day hanging out with, um, and who was someone who I felt like we shared a lot of values and perspectives on things. And, um, he, two years after that, his father died quite suddenly and, um, he became extremely religious and, um, it, it took a full year before, before he was like, this is the new me. Like I have a new name. I don't talk to women anymore. Um, kind of situation, but it was like, I had spent a ton of time with him when my mother died. He flew from England to be at my house for Shiva and like he doesn't like he teaches at Orsamech and doesn't talk to women now. <laughs> so it's like a big change and it is it made me think a lot because in the play the um the main character it's it's suggested that part of the reason that she makes this big transition is because her sister dies or has died. Um and so she has is kind of like figuring out how to process her grief and something about orthodox observant and i agree observance and i agree that it is like not at all clear what the appeal is other than that it's like 
it helps her, but we don't get any sense of like what it actually does for her. Um, and I do like, I think that that is one of those things where it's like from the outside, you might see someone make a big change in their life and be like, okay, I can kind of ascribe it to this event happening, but I just don't understand why they're making this change. Um, and, uh, like I'm just not really kind of seeing how it's happening and what the, what the steps are. Um, so, so yeah, all of that just kind of, it, I felt like it hinted at a lot of things that I totally feel and can identify with, but then I was like, but where are you going with it? Like, I kind of felt like at the end, it just didn't seem like it had something to say about like, what does it mean? What does it mean to like go somewhere and have this real change of identity and belief system? Something that's like really dramatically different from who you were just a few months ago. Like what is happening is everyone um, around Gabby is like trying to figure out how to grapple with this like new person in their lives. And I actually thought that the play did a really nice job of kind of like showing you how everyone had a point like nobody felt like I didn't feel like there was anyone where you were like they're just being terrible um without Mm -hmm. also feeling like oh they're being really obnoxious but they totally have a point but I was like but what are you supposed to do with that and I I I like knowing what I know about the playwright, it's like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel as someone who watches this from the outside. It's like, I saw this person make a choice. I like have some big ideas or not a choice, make a big change in their life. I have some vague ideas about like why they did that and how it affected them. But I don't, I don't really know. And I still don't really understand like, what was it and how, how did it change them? And how, how does it, feel different now than it did before. Um, And I felt like that was kind of the, like, the hole in the middle of the donut of the play (laughs) was the, like, what is the real um, feeling that she's having and how how is it helping her? Other than turning her phone off, which I agree does not seem like necessarily the number one reason to, like, become Shomer Nagia. I I had this feeling at the end, so... Some of the things that we know about Gabby going into her semester in Israel is that she likes pot, she has sex with her boyfriend, who she loves and has been with for a while, and she once punched somebody who made a cancer joke. Um, so she she talks about how like she has some anger issues. And at one point I thought, you know, maybe this would like this dramatic change and this like, this is what observance does for me, maybe would feel different if she were on like really hard drugs and sleeping around a ton and had like been in jail or something. There there was this piece of, of motivation that was missing, but it seemed like they were suggesting that these three like, oh, really bad things were part of the motivation to become Orthodox. And I was like, I don't know if that's a storyline in and of itself. Well, also, none of they, those three things are really bad. I mean... Right, no, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. Like, you can debate does, whether or not they're not good, but, like, really bad seems like maybe not an appropriate reaction to smoking pot, having sex with your boyfriend who you love, 
and punching someone who makes a cancer joke. Like, maybe not good choices, (laughs) but not, like, reason to, like, completely change the, like, drive of your life. That seems like an overreaction. Right. You know, it's funny. I actually didn't think the play had any problem with her prior sex life, but it did have a problem with the drugs and the anger. Um, Meaning that if if you're going to personify the morality of the play in the person of Gabby's mom, Tracy, what does she send her off with, right? Like she, she tries to get her not to take the pot cookies that her boyfriend has baked for her to bring on the plane. And Which I agree, she, such a bad idea. Like, couldn't you get arrested yeah, that, with dogs like that yeah. smell drugs? Like, listen to your yeah, mom. That was, I'm sure that you can get poor, pot in Israel. That was poor planning. Uh, <laughs> you can get pot in Israel. Um, and, um, and also just like, does she need a therapist? Does she need to be working out anger in a different way? But her mom also sends her off with a big pack of condoms. Like she just wants her right. to be safe. Um, right. And she wants her so, to get a uh, new boyfriend, which is fascinating. Right. Which seems on, <laughs> like Noah, Noah seems like a great guy. I know. Like, What's her mom's scale? He was one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. She's just trying to get her to not settle down, I guess. Other than the fact that Noah's the one who brings the pot cookies, we have no reason to think that Tracy should be upset with him. But anyway, I I think that the flip side of not fully understanding the role that grief plays in her religious transition is that it's also heavily hinted that grief plays a significant role in her parents' reaction, and I would have loved for that to be more fully explored. There's a sense that, you know, the Goldblums have already, quote-unquote, lost one daughter, and that they're afraid of losing another in this other way. Um, And that informs the strong reaction that especially Gabby's mom has um, to what they see as these religious choices distancing them from their daughter. Um, And to me, actually, that seemed like the newest concept in the play. So for all that I really respect the realistic and, and strong rendering of these conflicts, they didn't feel like they said anything new to me about the way um, people that become religious interact with their non-religious family. It felt very familiar. And maybe that's just because, Tamara, as you said, this is something that I've seen happen in, in life. And so maybe it's something that a lot of the audience hasn't seen. And so it's more revelatory. Um, but I didn't feel like there was a new comment being made there. Um, and I felt like exploring the role that grief played on both sides of this conflict could have been really interesting. And I really wished it was developed further. That's interesting because I was kind of annoyed about the grief storyline because it felt like it was suggesting that nobody would make this big of a change in their life if they hadn't had, like, a sister die of cancer. And I was, you know, I mean, I do know people that have definitely, like, made big religious changes in their lives after experiencing a loss, but I also know people who, like... I went to University of Iowa, and there was this one Shabbat at University of Iowa Hillel where they brought in a woman who was, like famous for, like, selling people on the idea of Shomer Nagia, of not touching members of the opposite sex before you get married, at University of Iowa, and she took this Jewish sorority, and she got all of these girls to, like, 
be like, oh my gosh, I'm totally going to do this. And I'm here to tell you that several of those girls are from today. Like, wow. <laughs> like something that happened really? on the Magic Touch Valentine's Day Shabbat weekend in like 2000. Wait, they brought Gila Mandelson yes. to the University of Iowa? I, it is still one of the craziest things that's ever happened to me. That's um, bizarre. Okay, it, anyway. It was so bizarre. Um, and yeah, so like these were not girls who I would have in a million years pegged as people who were likely to like look at from kite and be like oh yeah that's what I want that was like extremely far from the life that they were leading at that moment and some of them did now I will say that like none of them were like oh I want to be from and we're from from that day forward but several of them were like oh I want to be from then weren't from for another couple of years and then got really from so it definitely like turned something on in some way in some people um i mean that non-sexually gila manelson um <laughs> so i'm sure she i hear listens. what you're saying <laughs> i hear what you're saying about the grief storyline not being necessary um i think what was dissatisfying to me is that it was sprinkled in without much exploration i mean the hebrew name that gabby takes on is aviva which we learn is her sister's Hebrew name. That to me is interesting. What's going on for you? Um, and if we don't really get to hear any more of it, it feel it just sort of feels very unsatisfying. Just it's floating. It's just really out there. wild to be like, my sister died, so I can take her name now. Like that is not a thing. <laughs> Maybe it is, um, but we didn't get to true. explore it. It's, you know, that comes out of this conversation she has with her father where she says, Dad, do you remember what my Hebrew name is? And her father says, it's Gavriella, oh, I don't remember, Gabby. but your sister's Hebrew name was Aviva. And I'm just like, her name is Gabrielle. Like, there could not be <laughs> right. a more obvious Hebrew cognate. Like, the rabbi and Rebetzin she's spending Shabbos every week with couldn't figure this out for her. I've, Some anyway, people's but, Hebrew so, name like, has nothing to do with their English name. Famously, I know a girl named Jeremy whose Hebrew name is amazingly Yaakova. Um, but like, <laughs> sure. amazing on a number of levels. But I'm just saying, like, it's fine for her to ask her dad. It is just wild for her to be like, you only remember one Hebrew name, so that's what I'm the one I'm going to use. Like, that's not how names work typically. Right, which is why I think, you know, Mimi's point that this is meant to be like a real symbol of that this is in a large part in large part about her sister right that that feels very clear to me but again under undermined I mean mm -hmm. that is not the word I wanted to use meaning it is insufficiently <laughs> mind, mind for its richness <laughs> as opposed to yes. undermined in the more conventional sense um I one thing that the play does try and explore a little bit more is the um the balancing act that newly religious people have to um, have to do with how absolute are they going to be in their observance, um, both for the sustainability in their personal practice and also for their relationships. Um, so, for instance, when your parents fly all the way to Israel to see you and get food on Passover from a place that is kosher but not glot, right? So, how kosher does kosher have to be? Um, and this is something that you see a lot with newly religious people where it actually, if you're being 
serious and intellectually honest about your observance. It takes a lot of knowledge to be lenient. Um, and you see a lot of people uh, sort of sticking with the letter of the law that they have been taught because they don't have the, the, the knowledge level required in order to balance competing priorities. Um, and so all they're sort of going with is their, the, the little they've been taught and their emotional gut about what it means. Um, and that this conflict is sort of personified in this couple, this rabbinical couple that, um, that is mentoring her where uh, he is quite absolute and she, and she encourages Gabby to be um, more uh, gradual in her observance. And this struck me as an argument that an actual rabbinical couple that did a lot of outreach would have had in private many, many times and would not need to be having in front of the person they were talking to. In front of in students, the, right. Right, in this conflicty way. But I understood that like the play was using that for this purpose. Um, but it, certainly like that, that was an opportunity and a real thing that a lot of people in this situation go through and have trouble with. Similarly, the the conversation that Gabby and Shoshana have about her Gabby's boyfriend, um, Shoshana feels like you can't live this life. It's and have him still in it, and you need to tell him not to come to visit you because it's over. Um, and Gabby really wants to hold on to the relationship. And I thought I, I was pleased at the end um, that she finds a way to stay with Noah. Um, I don't know. It felt like the middle path in that, in the Gabby Shoshana dichotomy. I'm not sure Shoshana isn't right on that, though. Yeah, I was I mean, kind right. of like she had a good point. I I was like, I mean, I was happy at the end that it seemed like a middle path was being like chosen for this one moment or whatever. But I was also like, okay, but like, what's the long term solution here? <laughs> like either like your boyfriend wants to have sex with you because he's your boyfriend and you've done that a bunch of times and he like may reasonably not be into a relationship where that's like totally off the table and like you can't just be like we'll figure it out like (laughs) there's really only two options so I I was kind of like and I saw it with a friend who was also like relieved that that's where it ended but also felt like it was a cop out. Yeah, that did feel a little pat to me, but mm-hmm. it is true that like this is a relationship transition that I've seen people make. I've had people ask me for advice about transitioning into being uh, more restrictive with their um, with their physical relationship. You know, starting to become Shomer Nagia um, or some interim pathway, and this is something that I talk to people about. It's it's a really hard thing to do midstream, right? Relationships have parameters and assumptions. And I mean, but the big things in her observance, I think I'm saying all rang true in that way. Like the Shomernikia issues, the trying to navigate the absolutism of halacha, all of that felt real. There were some like little details that broke me out of the realism. There were a couple of false notes along the way. Did you guys have any like, uh, you know, detail problems or, or like maybe the people in, in this scene don't actually know how this works moments. I, so 
the actor who played the rabbi was very good, but there were some things that really irked me about the actor. I, I'm not about the actor, about the, the lines that the rabbi would say. I notoriously cringe at any sort of Jewish ritual on stage or screen, but when he was reading the blessings for Shabbat, he was very careful, the actor, not to use God's name and would say things like Ka or Elohim. But then later in other lines, when he's just like talking about Judaism, he was using God's name and it was just like, oh, I don't think you actually know why you're doing that in this setting. I, I don't know. That was confusing and annoying. What about you? I mean, it did bother me that the Rebitzin mispronounced Rebitzin. I don't know if this happened in the productions that you guys saw, but the, the actress, she, she pr- thought it was pronounced Rebitzin. I, I was just like, nobody has ever said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but didn't um, she speak Hebrew with an Israeli accent? Yeah, but the husband did not. So that was also oddly inconsistent. And you didn't get the sense that she was a person who would speak Hebrew with an Israeli accent. Well, but I wonder if in in reality, this is like an actress who comes from an Israeli family and maybe does speak Hebrew at home, but like is secular and therefore doesn't have cause to ever have used the word Rabbitson before. Right, which is not a Hebrew maybe. word. <laughs> There's also, as Gabby becomes more religious, she starts wearing a different outfit. And the outfit involves a headband, and the headband is like one of those things that can can scrunch up on the top of your head or it can be pulled wider. And for some reason, I don't know if this was in every production or it just happened to be the one I saw, for some reason by the end of the play it was pulled as wide as it could possibly go such that it was a full-on hair covering, which is not a thing that unmarried people becoming religious start to do, right? It seemed like it was supposed to be a symbol of increased modesty, but like that's a married person hair covering and nobody would have advised her to do that. So look, I feel picky right now. I'm sorry to be like picking on the details. Um, I I guess like to me, just so much about the big picture of her becoming religious felt right that I felt sort of jolted by the little things that were wrong. I, I, I also bumped on her head covering, but not because it was like, I don't think it was as dramatic in the production that I saw. Um, or the day that I saw it, but I was just like, she wouldn't need to cover her hair with anything. Like if you're getting religious and you're a girl, no one is, or you're a woman, no one is telling you that you need to like cover your hair at all. Like there's no reason for her to be wearing a headband, um, at all. And so it seemed kind of like a weird misdirection. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was less... I do often kind of like trip over little things that I feel like representations of Judaism get wrong um, on stage or screen. But in this case, I was more thinking about the like bigger issues of like, what is this actually trying to say about like, what is, what can you actually do to kind of reconcile like your old life and your new life? And like, should you try to reconcile them or should you just choose? And like, how should your parents deal with that? Like all of those questions, I felt like it brought them up, but then didn't like have a clear point of view of what you should do on them. And I was like a little bit 
bummed about that. I'm not totally sure that's a weakness or it may just be that that's a different play, but I think that really the play does leave you midstream on those questions and that at this point in somebody's religious journey, if you've just come back from a semester abroad and you've been religious for two months, you will not have figured those things out and your parents will not have figured those things out. Um, and the ending is her sort of making one quick stab in the direction of what feels like a compromise. But I do think that the play leaves us very much in like, these are the challenges she's facing and we have established um, sympathy for them and we've established the gravity of those challenges um, and we understand the plight. Um, so if, if this is not an issue that you have come face to face with a lot, that might be enough. Well, the play has closed. It was playing in the New York City Fringe Fest, but it may very well come to another um, festival near you. So I think that we would all recommend that you look out for it because it seems like we all had kind of engaged reactions to it, which is nice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> all right, it is time for endorsements and it has been some dark times. So I am looking for some some things to get excited about. Mimi, can you help me out? All right. So I I have one endorsement that, that comes with a bit of a confession or just sharing. Um, I get kind of snarky on this podcast, and I think in the past I've been snarky about mikvah experiences, um, but I want to say that I started going to Maim Chaim, the community mikvah in the Boston area, and it is amazing. It is so beautiful. The people are so wonderful. And it's been a really, really nice new ritual that I've added to my life that doesn't feel, um, at this particular mikvah, it's not, very, it's not a judgy place. Um, they're not, you know, doing a lot of checking of you or asking questions about your, your practices or why you're there even. Um, it's just really nice. And I can tell already that as winter comes, it's going to be so nice to like have this nice hot water experience um, or warm, warm water. But one of the things that I really like about Maim Chaim is that I get the opportunity there to read. They have Moment Magazine in print and they have some copies of Lilith Magazine. And I read these magazines online often, um, especially when people share articles from them. I gotta say, it's really nice in print. <laughs> and it's just really, it's really nice to be, um, to be in a pluralistic Jewish space that is not, that is explicitly feminist um, and that has really good feminist reading material. Um, so shout out to Maim Chaim and to those two publications, which are awesome in print. Um, and then I also just, some people might have heard this song a ton, um, but one of the songs that's been playing a lot at, or being sung a lot at vigils in the Boston area and services recently is called We Rise, um, by Bacha Levine, who lives in the Philly area, sorry, 
Bacha Levine, who lives in the Boston area. Um, and I will include it in the show notes. Um, the reason in particular that I really like this is that it specifically shouts out to the different generations of people in our Jewish community. Um, as you guys know, I work with older adults and I think that, um, what happened in Pittsburgh is really affecting our older adults in the Jewish community. Um, you know, there's been a lot said about, um, the ages of the people who were killed. Um, and also there's something to be said that, you know, these were the people who showed up to shul on time, um, who were the regulars who got things going. Um, and yeah, just, I think it's, for me, it's been really beautiful to sing this song and to think about the elders in our community. So that's my endorsement. I, I haven't heard that yet. So I'm actually really looking forward to, uh, to checking it out when you share it. Great. It is really good. It's a great endorsement. All right, Sahava, what do you have for us? So I'll do a, um, uh, a serious but hopefully encouraging and a lighter endorsement. So um, on the serious side, I want to shout out a year-old podcast interview. So um, a year ago, um, the day after the 2017 election, um, Slate hosted a live event. Slate, the online magazine, hosted a live event called The People Versus Trump Year One, um, which was a series of interviews um, between Slate writers and uh, activists who had been working in the previous year. Um, and I especially want to shout out the interview that Dahlia Lithwick did. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick is an editor and she writes on law and the courts uh, for Slate. She's also the host of their legal podcast, Amicus. Um, she interviewed Becca Heller, who is the founder of the International Refugee Assistance Project, so another Becca who works with refugees. Um, but what, I, what really jumped out at me about that interview, so they were talking a lot about the moment when the travel ban came down and um, uh, a, a huge cohort of volunteer lawyers descended on airports to try and help people sort through this tangle of these confusing new orders and what was valid and what wasn't and how people could get home or reconnect with their families. Um, and so Dahlia sort of tees up this question like, so was that really a spontaneous out of nowhere response? And Becca said, no, like, of course not. We knew this thing might be happening. We organized for ages. We were getting people um, ready and we were, we were prepared and that, the the real thing that jumped out at me about this conversation is that um, there was a talk about the overwhelm, right? The sense that there are so many things to deal with in the world, so many challenges in the world, so many things you might want to be addressing, and that it's um, it's too much. And, and a lot of times you have the sense that you don't know where to tackle the problems that exist. And, um, and what Becca Heller was saying was, this is the moment everybody heard of my organization because this is what was in the news, but I do this all the time. This is the thing that I do. And you find the thing that you do, find the important issue that riles you up and gets you passionate and 
put your energy into it and get good at it and get serious about it and be prepared for when it shows up in the headlines and work on it when it doesn't. And that you don't have to solve the, every problem that crosses the world's radar. You can solve the one problem, whether or not it's crossing the radar. And so that was really uh, powerful and encouraging for me um, as somebody who works in public policy, but doesn't always feel like the issue I work on is the most pressing at every moment. Um, and so I really appreciated that conversation. Um, there was an interesting series of conversations. Uh, interestingly, one of them was with Tamika Mallory, who uh, um, I feel differently about since this conversation, and uh, which um, we've discussed on this podcast. But um, it is totally worth listening to that segment and the rest of it if you are interested. Um, so the other thing that I want to recommend is a song by Israeli pop singer Hanan Ben-Ari. Um, this is something that popped up on uh, one of my Spotify daily mixes a while back, because, of course, one of my Spotify daily mixes is random Israeli music, because um, isn't everybody's. Um, yes, literally part of my endorsement as well. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. The song is called Bisurot Tovot, which literally means good news. Um, so I'll, I'll just play a little snippet of this for you guys. As I told a friend when I sent this to her, this guy is basically the Israeli Jason Mraz. It's like chill and boppy and fun and what you need a lot of the time these days. So I, I recommend that song too. That is awesome. That's awesome. Um, I uh, literally also wanted to recommend a song that is on my Israeli pop Spotify playlist. Um, so clearly Zahava and I are on the same wavelength. Um, I want to... You should share Spotify playlists, clearly. <laughs> I guess we really should. Um, <laughs> uh, it is, I was talking yesterday about how like it's slightly creepy that Spotify has actually been like, you like these six genres of music. We'll make you one playlist for each of these six genres. And it like hits them all. It's like a little uncomfortable. Um, anyways, so from mine, um, I really have been enjoying the song Shnei Meshugaim by Omer Adam, um, which uh, I will play a little bit for you guys. Uh, כמו איזה שני משוגעים בחוף שמרנו רגעים בלב שתינו את הנוף ואת היית יפה כמו פרח שאסור היה לקטוף רציתי רק לקטוף אותך רציתי לקטוף כמו איזה שני משוגעים בחוף the idea that like Shnei Meshugaim means like two crazy people. Um, and it's just like a basic love song, but that is like a great, <laughs> a great name for a love song. It's two crazy people. Um, on a more serious note, I want to endorse a poem. Usually the Hava is our resident po 
poet endorser, but um, I have just been thinking a lot about the poem called Poem Without an End by Yehuda Amichai, which is very short, so I will read it here. Inside the brand new museum, there's an old synagogue. Inside the synagogue is me. Inside me, my heart. Inside my heart, a museum. Inside the museum, a synagogue. Inside it, me. Inside me, my heart. Inside my heart, a museum. Um, Just something about that poem really um, has been kind of reverberating in my head for the past week and a half. So I hope it will resonate with some of you. Um, What a great show in a really rough time. It was really great to have these conversations with, with both of you and with Rebecca. Yeah, thank you both. This was great. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. You can also tell us what you want us to talk about. We talked about the play Observance because Alyssa got in touch with us um, and asked us to come and see it. So if you have a piece of culture that you'd like us to talk about uh, or to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can also leave a comment or on a post on Facebook, search for Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just look for Talking and Shul on the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a great way to support our show and make sure that we can keep you new episodes every month, which we will do again next month. But for now, thank you so much, Zahava. It was great talking to you. Yeah, and it was really great seeing you guys. I know our listeners don't get to see you, but I get to Skype, and it's nice seeing your faces. (laughs) Yes. And thank you, Mimi. Great talking to you, too. Thank you, Tamara. This was lovely. All right. We'll see you all next month.